We are here, sir, because President Trump corruptly abused his power and then he tried to cover it up. And we are here, sir, to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, and present the truth to the American people. And if you don't know, now you know. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This is a week the Senate trial actually began. We are here in the endgame of impeachment. We've been hearing from the House managers, from the president's defense team. A tremendous amount has gone on, and I think we've seen with a real clarity what the case looks like and the disparity in how the two parties are treating it. As it happens, uh, because things are moving so fast and I'm going to be on a plane some of Friday, I've asked Matt Iglesias uh, to join uh, and do the A block because I want to make sure that what we get here is up to the minute. So he's going to be here first to talk about what has happened in impeachment this week, catch everybody up. And then I have a conversation I think is really, really useful with Andrew Prokop, who's profiled Mitch McConnell. I wanted to do an episode about Mitch McConnell and what he is in American politics and what he's created in American politics, but also what he reveals about American politics. What he reveals is not actually about him since the beginning of this podcast. I think understanding him and what he represents and has worked with is crucial to understanding not just impeachment, but everything that has brought us to this point. And Andrew really did not disappoint in that conversation. Lizzo is a congressional reporter on the Vox Politics and Policy team. Uh, Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you have been up there on Capitol Hill uh, watching things. (laughs) And what What's been going on? (laughs) So the impeachment trial is officially underway. Uh, The lion's share of this week is House Democrats presenting their case for why Donald Trump um, should be charged with the articles that they approved last year. And what we started off with was actually quite an intense fight between Democrats and Republicans over just the rules of the trial itself. And that primarily focused on on the question of witnesses and subpoenas of additional records. Yes, yes, exactly. Like Democrats wanted to get that done right off the bat, largely because they fear that if they don't, it will not happen at all, which is looking increasingly more likely. And I think Republicans wanted to postpone it because then they can have the speedy trial that they've always wanted from the get-go. But that's important context because something I've heard a lot of the Republican senators saying in the media is, oh, this is boring. The House Democrats just keep repeating themselves, uh, which is sort of true, but House Democrats have been trying and failing to get additional evidence introduced. Right. It's a a contradictory argument because they're saying, listen, there's nothing new, but then they've also voted against considering anything new for the time being. Um, So it's a bit of an odd thing to say. And I think the other thing, too, is you've actually had Republicans say this is the first time they're hearing some of these facts about the case in the way that they've been presented. And I think that's really worth noting that this is the first time you're hearing the linear timeline of when Trump started to put a hold on the aid to Ukraine, you know, who was involved, what exactly went down. And it does seem like for many of the Republican senators, they're saying both that this is the first time they've heard it, also that they find it boring, also that they don't want more evidence, which is just to say their politics are they're supporting the president. Yes, yes. Ex- explicitly and implicitly, that's exactly what they're saying. And I think the thread that you see in all of those 
pushbacks that they've offered is that they're not really engaging with the substance of these charges at all. They're just engaging in process complaints, kind of continuing to say this is a rigged thing, the same type of thing we've heard throughout this time. And so, uh, but the the proximate stakes here are that there's going to be additional votes on the evidence question, and Democrats are hoping that they could maybe get Republicans to to join with them, and then they could they could get the extra witnesses they want. So they need four to get to that fifty one vote threshold. And right now, the concern is that nobody wants to be that fourth vote because you would be the deciding person. You're probably going to see a lot more backlash than the others. And so I think now it's not just four. I think the expectation is they're going to need a couple more than that just to make it seem like, you know, no one is put on the spot. And so who's seen as being in the mix here? Su- Susan Collins is always the perennial swing vote. What what else is? Do, what else do Democrats think they might have in play? Yeah, the obvious characters I think we always talk about. Susan Collins has made it pretty clear that she would vote in favor of witnesses. I think others who we expect to vote um, in that direction but have not really said it as explicitly are Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. And then a couple others that are in contention are Lamar Alexander, who is a moderate that's retiring, and Cory Gardner, a Republican who is quite vulnerable right now. Right. So Cory Gardner represents Colorado. Uh, This is um, the bluest state that has a Senate election Mm -hmm. coming up. He's in a tough spot, right? But in in old-fashioned politics, he's the person who would be definitely out there for witnesses. Like, witnesses polls well, you know, so on and so forth. But he's on everything for the past year, sort of tried to avoid getting on Trump's bad side. Absolutely. And I think his sentiment in that sense is very reflective of the reluctance you see in the broader Republican conference, both with other vulnerable members as well, including people like Joni Ernst, also very unwilling to break with the president. And that's why so much hope has come to sort of sit on Lamar Alexander, who isn't vulnerable. It's just that he's retiring. Right. And there's a sense that he's maybe old school, likes Evidence, decorum, like following the rules as they've been set and by president. Just, right. And just like maybe doesn't like Trump personally sure. <laughs> and so would be willing to do this rather than a, a political calculus on, on you know, Joni Ernst or somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think with him, some of the calculus that's been brought in is that he is a close ally of Mitch McConnell's, has been for some time, and he also might be interested in getting something done before he leaves. Uh And for that to happen, he'd likely need the support of both his conference and Trump. And so, you know, he's probably weighing some of those questions as he makes this decision. Do Democrats have any questions about their own members wavering? I mean, there's a number of Democrats representing very red states, Mm -hmm. Doug Jones, Joe Manchin. Like, are there any problems that that they seem to be facing with? Think. The folks that you just mentioned are the obvious contenders for people that they are worried about defecting. But until this point, you really haven't seen any cracks among Democrats, whereas actually I think it is worth noting that among Republicans, there's been very slight fractures in that Mm -hmm. um, Susan Collins and Rob Portman, who has kind of not been talked about as much, both opposed Mitch McConnell's original rules resolution, pushed back against it. He actually changed it in response to their complaints. So 
small fracturing. So there but, was a slight modification yes, of, yeah. of McConnell's original rules. Right. Um, and, and you're saying on the procedural votes we've had so far, Democrats have been completely united. Yeah, yeah. We've had like a ton of 53-47 votes. Only one that was 52-48 where mm-hmm. Susan Collins crossed over. It was not a particularly contentious change, but that was the only defect. Democrats have had three days to sort of do their arguments. And and what did they do? How, how did they divide that up? What's the structure? The way that they've broken it up was day one was primarily about laying out the timeline. So it was a super detailed, thorough argument. They used a ton of video clips of testimony from last year, as well as clips of Trump of that infamous Mick Mulvaney press conference to make the case that, you know, Trump did do this. Day two was about a lot of preemption of potential Republican arguments. So they spent a lot of time explaining why what Trump did was an impeachable offense. They also spent a lot of time debunking claims that have been made about Joe Biden and Burisma just off the bat because I think they expect that to come up. And then day three, I think they're really going to be wrapping it up with talking about what Trump did in terms of obstructing Congress from finding out more about everything that happened. And that's, you know, blocking people from responding to subpoenas, blocking documents from being called, that kind of thing. And so then in procedural terms, what what comes next for this? What's the what's the next phase of this? The next phase immediately will be the defense. So Saturday will be the first day we actually hear the explicit arguments um, more directly from Trump's own counsel. And then they'll have three days to do that. I don't know if they'll use all that time. The expectation is actually that they'll kind of barrel through rather quickly. And after that, there'll be 16 hours for senators to ask written questions to both the prosecution and the defense. And the prosecution is conducted by actual House Democrat caucus members, uh, but Trump's defense is outside attorneys? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's like his personal counsel so far. Jay Sekulow has been really leading the charge on that. And then also um, White House counsel Pat Cipollone. And then um, what we expect from some of these kind of high-profile people, he's uh, brought on Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz. And so then after the 16 hours of written questions, is there going to be a a vote on on the trial? Are there going to be more witness votes? Um, At that point is when we expect the next witness vote to happen. So then is when we'll see if some of these moderates have really made up their minds and are willing to take a stand one way or the other. What arguments have the Republicans? I mean, they they do have to speak publicly, and, and the president has has a legal team here. I mean, mm-hmm. what what have what have they been saying? The central Republican argument is that the crimes or the charges that Trump faces are not crimes. So that the abuse of power and the obstruction of Congress articles that those are not considered statutory crimes. So they do not rise to the level of impeachable offenses, and that's been disproven, I think, in multiple ways. One, in that the GAO has actually said that what he did was a crime Mm -hmm. in terms of holding the Ukraine aid, which had been already approved by Congress. And then two, that constitutional scholars in general agree that an impeachable offense does not have to be a statutory crime, and it can be abuse of power kind of described in the way that it's been described about Trump. Yeah, so the GAO report on this, because this is interesting because it came out after the impeachment vote had yes. happened. Yeah. Uh, but they said basically that, you know, by law, you can't hold up the expenditure of money that has been duly appropriated, that Trump could have vetoed the spending if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he did. Right. Like a president is not allowed to impose his own policy preferences or personal preferences on funding that's been allocated for a specific reason. All right. Lizo, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Joining me next, Andrew Prokop to talk about Mitch McConnell, who he is, where he's come from, how he amassed so much power, and how the way he uses that power reveals something that is much bigger than just him and his tactics. That is coming up next on Impeachment Explained. This week on The Gray Area, writer Derek Thompson makes his case that everything has become a cult. Well, almost everything. Is Taylor Swift the closest thing we have to a mass cult today? I, 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 no, I think she's the closest thing we have to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. Find out if you're in a cult this week on The Gray Area, wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Brokaw, welcome to the podcast, although excitingly now in the B Block. I am honored to be invited to the B Block. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a thrill to have you. So you've written um, a great profile a bit back uh, on Mitch McConnell, and I've wanted to do an episode on Mitch McConnell the whole time I've been doing this podcast because he is a central figure force factor um, in impeachment. And, and so I wanted to start here. What is Mitch McConnell at the beginning of his career? Because his his start in Republican politics does not really seem like a straight line to what he represents for people now. I wrote this profile of him back in 2017 during the Obamacare repeal fight. Uh, it, it was titled Mitch McConnell is Breaking the Senate. And for it, I, I did dig into his history to an extent. I read his book, which um, is titled The Long Game, which in and of itself tells you something about who McConnell is. But, you know, he was he's very open in the book about the role of personal ambition and the desire to win in his career ambitions. He even says at one point that most politicians tell some kind of high-minded story about why they get into politics and He's just not going to bother with that. Uh, it was about personal ambition. He wanted to become a senator from the time he was very young and sort of like a young political geek growing up in Kentucky. And he achieved that. And he said that from the very first year he entered the Senate, he decided that he wanted to be Senate majority leader. That was 1985 when he first entered the Senate. And he had to sort of feel things out for how to achieve that goal. Obviously, there are a lot of senators who might be interested in party leadership, and he had to kind of figure out where the Republican Party was and master the competing interests and the various currents within the party. So one of the first major ways he distinguished himself in the Senate, he joined in 1985, and within a few years, he had become a notorious open opponent of any campaign finance reform. He blatantly defended the existing system of money in politics, big campaign donations, which was coming under increased criticism from both parties, really, uh, mainly the Democratic Party, but also John McCain in the Republican Party. And, uh, and it, it was an issue where there was some bipartisan common ground at the time. And McConnell sized things up he decided that this was an issue that was of major importance to the Republican Party. It was an issue that was of major importance to many current Republican senators. And it, and it was an issue that could propel his rise in the party. He became chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the, you know, the GOP Senate Campaign Committee, 
in the late 90s. And that role involved a lot of fundraising, a lot of big money. So he sort of realized that by being the heel here, the person who is willing to say money in politics is good and restrictions on it are bad, something that a lot of his colleagues who secretly sort of agreed with him or sympathized with him but but were afraid to go that far, it, it earned him some credit and it helped um, sort of smooth his path to rise in the Senate GOP leadership as the 2000s began. So there's a bunch in there that I want to dig into, but 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 I want to start with this question of McConnell's level of cynicism. It's something you hear about him. Um, Alec McGillis, who's written a, a sort of short biography of McConnell called The Cynic, uh, makes this point in a conversation with our, our colleague Sean Illing and in his book that McConnell doesn't believe in much. What he believes in is power. You make a sort of similar point in, in a close read of the book. And there's also evidence given that McConnell's move from relatively uh, – being a relatively liberal Republican who was involved in civil rights issues in, in Kentucky to being quite conservative now. And I always wonder if it's true. Uh, it's very true that he plays the heel. But do you think it's actually the case that he's not strongly committed to movement conservatism as an agenda. I mean, when I hear him talk, for instance, about judges and he says the single most important thing we do here is we put conservative judges on the bench because they are there for life. I don't think of that as Mitch McConnell it cares about judicial process because it somehow accrues to his power. It seems to me that he is a very clear-eyed uh, movement conservative who understands that if the things he wants in the world are going to happen, it requires the cold-eyed, realistic amassing of power, and he will do whatever it takes for that. But but there there is some kind of ideological core, which in some ways is why it's actually dangerous. I think there's a lot to that, um, and I think the – issues of winning and electoral success and also delivering for his team, so to speak, his uh, Republican Party or conservative establishment or conservative interest groups team is what he believes his goal and reason for being in politics is. He wants to leave a legacy. He is concerned about his place in history and talks about it all the time, even though he, you know, when it comes to the day-to-day -day coverage of the press, he says he doesn't really care how he's viewed. But it's hard to trace a deep-seated ideological commitment to conservative principles or even ideals as you can with some other politicians. It's more he's kind of settling into a community, a group, and has decided that to advance himself and to essentially win and achieve things, he is going to deliver what that group wants. So something you say, and I love the word you use, the, the being willing to play the heel, right, which is a, a wrestling term for the, the bad guy. This is something that it always strikes me McConnell shares with Trump in a way that is an under-examined source of power for both men because they do it so differently. So I think it's understood that one of Trump's political advantages is a willingness to say things that will create backlash, a willingness to be unpopular with people, a willingness to rile up his base even if it means he will never crack 50 percent approval rating as a, a president or even as a human being at this point. Uh, McConnell doesn't act the heel in the way Trump acts the heel. It's not rallies and insult comedy and lying in the same flagrant way, though there is sometimes some lying. But what McConnell will do is act the heel in terms of power, that he does it quietly, 
in an understated way, you know, wearing a suit and tie, both literally and metaphorically. But he'll be the guy who says, we're not going to give Merrick Garland even a hearing. He'll be the guy then who says, well, of course, we would fill a Supreme Court seat if it came open in 2020. That what he's understood is that a lot of American politics and the weaknesses of individual actors in it, at times at least, come from norms come from not wanting to be criticized by the press or others in your party or outside of your party. And that if he simply does away with that, if he just looks at the power he has under the rules and asks people to judge him on what he gets done, that he can do quite a bit more by simply jettisoning any of the restraints of of, of shame or forbearance or historical tradition that have constrained to some degree his predecessors. And I think part of that is also when you think about the Garland blockade and what it achieved. It was a conscious choice of him to play the heel there. In part, that was to protect his own Republican senators because he did not want those senators to have to take a tough vote on this Supreme Court nominee and to be put in an awkward position in 2016, a year when the Senate was believed to be seriously in play, when Donald Trump was expected not to win, Hillary Clinton was expected to win. And by taking the notoriety of the blockade, uh, taking responsibility for it himself, in a way he kind of saved his members who faced tough races that year because then they could say whatever they wanted, like, oh, I think he deserves a vote, but, you know, the leader has decided differently or something like that. And I tend to think that um, if Merrick Garland did come for a vote that year, he would have been voted down in the end. But this was a way to achieve that outcome that shouldered the responsibility on McConnell rather than on his Republican senators. They, of course, if they wanted Merrick Garland to come to a vote, they could have demanded it to happen, but uh, but they did not want that. They, they appreciated that McConnell did this favor for them. And, uh, and, and so and that's part of his power as well, that he sizes up what the Republican senators in his conference want, what would serve their political interests, and tries to come up with a clever way to deliver it to them. I think this is such an important point you make here, and so, so I want to emphasize it for a minute. I think people are often very unclear on what gives congressional leaders power because it's a very different job than a lot of the other jobs we think of in politics. It's a much less public job. Most of the the leaders of the various congressional parties and wings are not great public communicators or super exciting speakers or big celebrities in in, in politics when they get that role. What they are is people who can deliver in one way or another for, for their members. And you've identified here, I think, two things that it's worth people listening, really understanding are, are part of McConnell's power base. The one hand, he He's just an extraordinary party fundraiser, and he protects the Republicans both in terms of getting them a lot of money and protecting them from rules that would reduce their financial advantage in elections. And he is willing to play the heel to do that so they can pretend to be more open to reform or more open to uh, other good government initiatives while McConnell is sitting there, you know, like the the dark master (laughs) um, casting his spells on the Senate. And then similarly here, you see this not just with uh, Merrick Garland, but it's been true in impeachment too, where McConnell McConnell is stepping out in in front and rather than trying to put on a performance that would get him 
nice Washington Post and New York Times editorials about how he's taken his constitutional duty seriously, um, even though at the end he'd have to protect Trump. He's just willing to go out and say whether or not it's popular. I am here. Like, we are not going to let this happen. Um, I'm coordinating with the White House. Um, he said in another thing that you all know your constitution and the way impeachment stops is with me as Senate majority leader. And that allows his individual members in tougher seats to to sway more because they're actually not that key vote so long as McConnell can actually protect them from having to take those votes ultimately. Whether or not that will ultimately work here, I think we'll see because there's more votes yet to come. But it, it seemed to me that he was trying to run a similar play here where he just got – he went way in front of playing the villain in the hopes that that would give his people um, some room to support him tacitly but say what they need to do publicly. Yeah, and there is definitely some mixed messaging coming from McConnell. I think it was on December 12th that he went on Fox News and said, there's no distance between me and the president's legal team on how the impeachment trial will be run. And then about a week later, he went on the Senate floor to talk about it, and uh, he sounded a different tune. He started talking a lot about the 1999 precedent for Bill Clinton's trial. And this is a point that he has returned to again and again and again since then, that all he wants to do is the same basic thing that Bill Clinton got from the Republican Senate in 1999, which in this case, what's relevant about that is that there would be no decision on whether or not to call witnesses until after the trial begins rather than before it. So I think what he has done here is that he has looked in history for a conveniently chosen precedent that can be used as a, as a kind of um, a better rationalization or justification for what he intends to do, what he truly intends to do, which is to protect Trump as and his party as much as possible. But this is something that um, reportedly appealed a lot more to Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and uh, other senators who are a bit more independent-minded on this. They, they didn't really like the idea that, you know, we are completely in the tank for Trump here. And you can see that in the fact that this trial has begun and they, they didn't start off with just a motion to dismiss throwing the charges in the trash. There are a few Republican senators who want to at least go through the motions on this. And for them, the justification of, oh, we're following the Clinton model is more appealing than the other justification McConnell has offered, which is we're just going to work closely with the president and there will be no distance between us. I want to talk about another justification he's offered for this kind of behavior in the past. Um, in, in his book, when and here he's talking about the Affordable Care Act, but in general, he's talking about the campaign of mass obstruction he proposed, he he led on everything President Obama wanted to do. But he writes in the book that he didn't want a single Republican to vote for the bill because, quote, it had to be very obvious to the voters which party was responsible for this terrible policy. And putting aside the question of terrible or great or whatever you think of the policy, what McConnell seems to me to have always understood in a way that was a lot clearer than a lot of other players in politics was that Many Americans take their signals on whether or not policy is good or bad from whether or not there's some level of bipartisan support for it, whether or not it seems to be the zone of intense, angry, bitter conflict, or whether or not you're seeing people from both parties come out and shake hands and hand out pens and celebrate uh, something getting done. And what McConnell's always done very well is heighten the contradictions. He he did it in the minority um, in when he was opposing President Obama to show that Obama wasn't able to bring the country together, that he was 
wasn't able to to calm the divisions between red and blue, that actually he had just ushered in another kind of partisan warfare era. And then here, too, it's not only McConnell, it's obviously Republicans in the House as well, but he's very much trying to make clear that impeachment is a partisan attack on the president. And he recognizes that whatever the facts of it are, the way people are going to ultimately come down on it is going to be by following the lead of their leaders. So, so long as he can keep his caucus together in opposition to something, that will send the signal that it is partisan. And given that the Republicans control the Senate, if it's going to be partisan, there is no danger here truly for Donald Trump. I think that's right. And I think McConnell has always been ahead of the curve in understanding the power of partisanship in the modern Congress and how polarized things are continuing to get just increasingly. And back when Obamacare was under discussion, McConnell was down to 41 Republican senators and uh, eventually dropped to 40 after Arlen Specter switched parties. And that was a total disaster. It, it was the lowest that any party had gotten in the Senate in decades. And he basically had to come up with a plan for how to come back from it. And rather than tacking to the center and moderating, as many you know in Washington might have suggested, he embraced the logic of partisan combat, blanket opposition to Obama. He always has his finger on the pulse of conservative voters and and kind of where the conservative temperament is as well. So it, it it's not I, I wouldn't say that McConnell necessarily is so good at appealing to swing voters, which in a way isn't really his job. He is the Republican Senate leader. He would like to put together a Republican Senate majority, but his main goal is to deliver for Republican interests and really for the Republican base. And, and I, th I think one of his somewhat under-recognized uh, impressive accomplishments from a political perspective is that throughout the whole period that the rise of the Tea Party, all of these um, shenanigans in the House with John Boehner struggling to keep control of the Freedom Caucus and other far-right Republicans in the House, debt ceiling showdowns, government shutdowns. McConnell managed to come up with a formula that built him credibility with conservatives and, and kept his stranglehold of power on the Republican conference in the Senate, mostly beat back after a few years of, of some really rough primary challenges that hurt his effort to finally get in the majority in the Senate. He kept struggling in the minority for years, but he came up with the formula that he was going to oppose, slow down, and obstruct Obama on the big things. And then once Republicans took power in the House, he changed what he was doing a bit. He continued the obstruction, total obstruction on nominations. But when it came to legislation, McConnell was often the one cutting deals with Joe Biden or with um, or, you know, kind of helping bring those crises that were stoked by either Ted Cruz or by uh, Republicans, uh, John Boehner's Republicans in the House, helping bring those crises to an end. So he was 
sizing up how all of this would play to help him get that Senate majority he craved for so long and, and that he didn't actually end up getting until the 2014 midterms when um, there was another backlash year against Obama and uh, and he finally achieved that majority. I never thought I'd be comparing Mitch McConnell to, to Batman, but there is very much a Dark Knight dimension to him where he's like not the hero people want, but he will be whatever hero the Republican Party needs him to be at that moment. He will do what needs to be done or or take on the reputation that needs to be taken on. Something that you said in, in that answer early on was that he's been ahead of the curve on some of these issues. And, and I want to talk about this because I think one problem with McConnell is that he is so good at attracting attention as the heel. He is so good at becoming the, the lightning rod, even in his own weird, understated way, but like with that Fox News comment, that sometimes I think it creates a mythology about him among liberals, that he is this master tactician and strategist whose obstructive innovations or partisan innovations are responsible for this era, when much more what he is is somebody who is simply responding to and is a creature of the incentives as he faces him. I always think it's a very important note that in the Merrick Garland saga, McConnell didn't invent a parliamentary maneuver or a procedure. He simply had the votes to not permit anything to move forward on Garland. And so it wasn't just him. It was everybody who was under him. And similarly, it's not like House Republicans have acted in a depolarized way. Paul Ryan would go out there with his sad eyes and kind of imply that he felt bad about what Trump was doing and saying, but even so was going to support him. McConnell doesn't play around with any of that, but it's not that Paul Ryan was somehow acting as a check on Trump in a way that is now abandoned and it's just McConnell uh, abetting him. And so you had this line in, in your piece on him where you said with Garland that though many liberals believe McConnell pulled off a masterful heist, in many ways he was merely accelerating the inevitable. And that seems to me to be the truth of McConnell, that he he is a figure who is showing how the structures and rules and systems of American politics work in a highly polarized era. He's not inventing new powers. What he's simply doing is using the powers that have always been there and abandoning some of the pretense or the reality even of compromise or holding some of these tools back uh, because, you know, now in his view and in the view of pretty much every Republican who serves with him, the stakes are high enough to make compromise uh, unrealistic or even uh, unwise. And I think you see that in impeachment right now, too. If Mitch McConnell were not the Senate Republican leader, it's not as if Senate Republicans would uh, be all coming out in favor of having a fair trial. I think uh, Rand Paul estimated this week that there are probably about 45 of the 53 Republicans right now who would support a motion to dismiss the charges and and just end things right away. So McConnell is reflecting them in a way. And, you know, 45 out of 53 Republican senators is a lot. It's like the vast majority in the conference are not at all interested in checking Trump in, you know, high-minded aspects of this process, like um, the Senate's institutional role in checking executive power or finding the truth or protecting the fairness of the 2020 election. You know, to them, this is about Donald Trump, the most popular figure in the modern Republican Party, a person they have almost all made their peace with supporting and defending over the past several years, and who is their party's ticket to future electoral success in 2020, suddenly being threatened. And um, 
they have no interest in continuing this and and McConnell is is doing what they want essentially and i think also McConnell's relationship with Trump and his role in the Trump era has been really interesting to see play out as you mentioned Paul Ryan had a much more tense relationship at least when it came to open public sniping, even though, as you say, he mostly went along with what Trump wanted in the end. I think with McConnell, there was a brief period. It was around summer 2017, right after Obamacare repeal failed. And Trump was openly furious at McConnell, attacking him in the press, saying he failed. And uh, McConnell was kind of sniping back a little bit. And, And it briefly looked like relations between Trump and maybe the most important person protecting him and his presidency were about to spiral out of control. You had Steve Bannon out there supporting uh, primary challenges to various Republican senators backing McConnell. He wanted to make McConnell the emblem of the swamp. And then what happened was that Roy Moore won the Alabama primary, defeating McConnell's handpicked candidate and then, of course, lost the general election to Doug Jones. And that, I think, really helped um, that plus, you know, the passing of the tax cut bill helped McConnell and Trump really improve their working relationship and realize that, you know, for better or worse, they're stuck together. And uh, Trump is not going to, he and his allies are not going to destroy Mitch McConnell's power in the Senate. And if McConnell destroys Trump's power, all that will happen is that the Republican Party is hurt electorally the next time they're on the ballot and that McConnell himself might lose his Senate majority leader role. So they reached a kind of working relationship that uh, McConnell has turned the Senate into a judge factory and uh, he's judicial confirmation factory and he's ready to dispense with all this uh, silly stuff about, um, you know, scandals and wrongdoing in his view to get back to what he wanted, which was to steer and manage Donald Trump in a way to make him as much of an ordinary Republican president and to do as many ordinary Republican things as he could. And so I think where this leaves us is watching the impeachment trial go on, watching McConnell's approach to it, which has been to not understand the Senate as a body that should approach us in an impartial way, but to understand Senate Republicans as an allied group with their president, Donald Trump. I think that there can sometimes be an almost comforting, even though it's not framed that way, belief that McConnell is some kind of aberration in American politics, that if somehow he just weren't there, that maybe this would all work a lot better. But that McConnell is much more the logical extension or output of American politics in this era. And so what we're seeing from him in impeachment is not so much a lesson in what one particularly calculating, cynical politician can do. But just what happens if politicians follow the very partisan incentives of this polarized age inside of a system where to get things like accountability or even legislation done requires often acting against interest and um, overcoming partisanship, at least for a little while, for longer-term system-wide incentives. And to me, that's pretty scary. I mean, look, like if the whole problem with American politics is Mitch McConnell's a bad guy, we can at least imagine a pretty straightforward way of fixing that and, you know, find the right candidate in Kentucky and pump enough money into there and maybe maybe you can beat him. But it's not that. And so what we're seeing with impeachment, like McConnell is the face of it, but he's the face of a system, not the system itself. 
And a lot of that applies to Trump, too, of course, as unique as he is in some ways. What he is tapping into, the power of um, identity and demagoguery and um, these forces are bigger than him, and uh, they're bigger than Mitch McConnell. And when those two figures leave the scene, these kind of worrying trends in American politics are not going to go away. Andrew Prokop, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I think that is a good place to leave it. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Liz Nelson uh, for being our executive producer. Impeachment Explained is Vox Media podcast production. <laughs> <laughs>